Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. We have a special treat today. Uh, as most of you know, since we relaunched the podcast, my very first guest uh, is rejoining us today, John Hodges, who's the director of the Center for Western Studies in Memphis, Tennessee. If you listened to that first episode, you know that we discussed uh, some Q&A a little bit of, of the talk he gave last summer at the National Conference, where he walked us through a piece called The Firebird and really helped all of us to appreciate that piece better. And it's kind of a learning how to read music, not read music like sight read, but read music and, and understanding what we're listening to um, and what the, what the composer uh, and the musicians are trying to do. And so our mutual friend at Classical Academic Press, Joel Hodge, suggested this is something we should try to to bring to the podcast audience. Um, and so we're excited to be able to do that today. Uh, John, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you, Brandon, for for your uh, your request. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, I know. I know this is something that we've talked to you off and on over the years about trying to do some more um, a little bit of music education through our podcast. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, I do. I think it's a great thing to do. It's like a language, isn't it? I mean, you have to kind of learn the language of it if you're going to make sense of it. And so it was one thing if you're going to teach literature or, you know, poetry or novels and things like that, because basically we already speak that language. But with music, it's just like a language, but it's a language that most people have never studied. So it's a good thing to kind of dive in and try and unpack some of it so understand what the composers are trying to say. Yeah, and I think uh, this will really help um, parents and teachers, you know, learn a little bit about what to be listening for as we try and do music education in our schools and homeschools as well. So, absolutely, and hopefully, it's something we're gonna we're gonna try and do on you know kind of a regular basis every few months or so. Have John on to bring us to another piece. So I'm gonna let John introduce kind of the pieces we're talking about today and give us a little bit of background on them, and then we'll we'll dive right in. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I kind of like the idea of talking about how music can express things. Uh, we, you know, we we talk about uh, how the lyrics or the the words, the text for a piece can express things. Certainly. Um, but we also have to talk about what the music brings to the interpretation of that text, because that's what's happening each each time you've got a piece of music. If you're setting text to music. Uh, and I thought Mozart would be a really great example of how the composer shapes music to uh, express even the the um, the characteristics of the people that are doing the singing. Uh, he's he's a tremendous opera composer. Everybody should know. Everybody probably does know that Mozart was a tremendous opera composer. And if you're going to understand his music, I think you need to understand what he's doing in opera. He loves the drama. He loves the characters. And one of the great things he he brought to the the uh, history of opera is uh, a, a, a uniqueness of the music geared to each individual character. Up until Mozart, uh, you find um, uh, opera composers writing tunes that, could, that are somewhat interchangeable with other similar characters. Like if you have a tragic heroine singing a, uh, you know, Dido's Lament or something from Purcell's um, Dido and Aeneas, um, you, technically you could, you could write that lament for another female character lamenting something, and it wouldn't be too far off. It's the, the characteristics of the music are, not geared, you know, so specifically to the character that is singing. But when when you get to Mozart, Mozart is such a tremendous composer. He's able to capture the the particulars of that individual character so that in the, the course of the opera Marriage of Figaro, for example, which is what we want to try and play some examples from, um, the Countess's music and uh, Susanna's music, even though the two of them are about the same age uh, and even the same voice quality, um, are not interchangeable. One is one is a countess and one is a servant and their characters are different. They're both um, they're both very witty and very capable, but their uh, but their but their status is different. And you hear it in the music and the the sort of personality of the countess comes through in her music in a way than the personality of this of Susanna, the, the servant, comes through uh, you know, in her music. 
so that they really are recognizable. Um, <clears throat> what's more, he's so good at getting the music to describe the dramatic moment that is that he's uh, depicting. So <clears throat> I wanted to play for everybody the very opening of, uh, of The Marriage of Figaro. It's a comic opera in four acts uh, written in, I guess, let's see, 17, 1785 or so. I didn't look it up, but I think that's about right, 1785. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the latest of his operas. Um, just a word or two about Mozart before we go. Uh, you know, he only lived 35 years. A lot of people don't realize that uh, when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for 30 years. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, so he was, you know, he, he, some people say he just burned himself out. He, he wrote the equivalent of 70 or 80 years worth of music in about 25 years. Wow. So it's an, he's an amazing genius. Well, he, uh, he wrote quite a number of operas in the last few years of his life. He wrote, uh, uh, Così Fan Tutte and he wrote, um, uh, Don Giovanni, and he wrote uh, um, Marriage of Figaro and Idomeneo, and uh, and uh, finally the Magic Flute uh, at the end of his life. And all of those five or six operas that were that are all magnificent, top of the line, greatest accomplishments in the in the area of opera uh, in the history of the world. He wrote within about six years, five years. He almost wrote one a year. So uh, astonishing, astonishing uh, uh, creativity. Well, I wanted to play the, the beginning of this this uh, comic opera uh, because it does such a good job of showing you the difference of character in the beginning. And what's more, the relationship of the two characters is shown in the music, too. And so I thought I'd give you that uh, as our, our example for today. That'd be all right. Sounds great. Okay. Well, I guess the best thing to do would be to set up the scene because we're gonna we're gonna start with the very opening of the uh, of the opera, um, right after the famous overture. There's a very famous overture that goes with this opera, uh, and as soon as that's over with, the curtain goes up and you hear um, this opening duet. <clears throat> and in the in the scene, this is what's happening. You see a man and a woman. And they are in a room in a in a palace and they're dressed as servants. They're both servants. One of them is Figaro and the other one is Susanna. And they are going to be married. And you find this out in the very first scene, the very scene we're about to see. Um, but they're doing two different, very different things. He is on his knees measuring the floor. So he's saying five, ten. 20, 30, he's measuring the floor. And interspersed with that, you hear Susanna, who is looking in a mirror at herself at a hat, or sometimes it's a veil that she's wearing. And she's admiring this veil, this hat. And she turns to Figaro and she says, Figaro, what do you think of this hat, basically? <laughs> and, and his response is, 20. And she says, no, no, my hat. What do you think about my hat? You know, and he says 30. And then he says 37. I think it'll just fit here. And she says, she kind of nags at him a little bit. She's you can hear it in the music. He goes, yet, 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 yet. And like he's not paying attention to her. And he, like so many of us, uh, is so wrapped up in what he's doing, and he just sort of patronizes her. He turns to her and he goes, yes, my love, it's it's uh, perfect, yes, a great hat. And he goes back to measuring. <laughs> and she gets after him again. Finally, he looks at her for real. And you can tell in the music that he's looking at her for real. He's got his focus now off of what he was doing, and he's looking at her. And he and the two of them get closer and closer together and the closer and closer together. And then finally, they start singing in harmony with each other. And you know that they have been interested in two different things to begin with. But now they have joined together and they're singing about how beautiful this hat is, how this beautiful this veil is. And it's the perfect one for you and uh, that you're going to make a beautiful bride. So it's clear they haven't gotten married yet, but they're about to be. And they really do love each other. It's it's very clear that the two of them are made for each other right off the bat. And that's, and that's an important, 
It's an important thing to realize, and it's something you realize from the music. It's an important thing to realize because the comedy of the rest of the opera, and the opera is very long, um, but it's very funny. The comedy is based purely on uh, on uh, whether or not the two of them are going to be able to get married. He he has a, 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 a rival, as it were. A woman shows up that uh, that claims to be. I don't want to go into the whole plot of it. It's a very long and complicated plot. But the point is, the question the question is going to be time and again: Does she really love him, or is she in love with somebody else and just just leading him along, or? Does he really love her or is she really going to marry somebody else and he's just leading her along? And you know from this very first scene that neither of those two things is true, that any doubts that either of them have about the other are false, are mistaken, and they become proven as mistaken as time goes on. But if you know this first scene, and you recognize what Mozart's doing in the music in the first scene, you know that they are meant for each other, and nothing can come between them. So there's really no danger, there's really no threat to their to their uh, upcoming marriage. Uh, and, uh, and all of these other things are just distractions and misunderstandings, and they can be played for comedy, you see, it's not serious. So let me play you this opening, and I'm, I may have to speak over it because it's in Italian. I'll tell you what it is they're saying to each other. But you'll hear the uh, you'll hear the duet. They each sing a separate tune, and then when they come together, they sing in harmony with each other. And you can tell they're they're right for each other. Is the end? That's the end of the overture. Now we go into Act One. All introductory material. Curtain goes up. Now you see her looking in the mirror and him on the floor measuring. And he says, Five. Dieci. Ten. Venti. Venti, like your Starbucks. Trenta. Trenta. Thirty-six, he said. And then she says, so happy with this hat, this veil. It was made just for me. She's saying, look at me, darling Figaro. And he says, Trenta. Is a lovely bonnet? Forty-three, he says. Now she nags at him. It's too bello. It's very pretty. It's just right for you. She says, but look at it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now he looks. And hear them together. It is perfect for you. And then And they kiss each other and all is well cool. Now that's the opening duet. Now what did it tell us? Well, it told us, like I said, that they were thinking in ter separate terms to begin with. Well, what were they thinking about? Well, he was thinking about measuring the floor 
and she was looking at her reflection in the mirror. She was looking at her wedding veil. And so her mind is on the wedding and how she's going to look at the wedding. What is he thinking about? Well, this turns out to be the room that they're going to live in when they are married. And so he's measuring the floor to see if the bed will fit in the room. (laughs) So already you have a kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of a, a, um, what's the word I want? Uh, A characteristic male and female difference, okay? (laughs) She's thinking about the wedding. He's thinking about the wedding night. Right. That's how they're, that's where their minds are, right? Well, that's, it's just, it's just a little human. That's all. It's just a little <laughs> bit like like men and women are a little bit. So uh, anyway, Mozart gets a little joke out of that, even though nobody speaks about it. It's just it's there. And <clears throat> what's interesting, though, is when they do come together and sing in harmony, the question is, which uh, who whose tune do they sing? Do they sing his tune or do they sing her tune in harmony? And the answer, of course, is they sing hers. She's the one that's been been singing like that. And then when he he sees her and moves over toward her and they take each other's hands and look into each other's eyes, he sings in harmony with her. Now, that means something, too. Nothing is left to the uh, to accident. This is all, all crafted by Mozart very carefully. It turns out that of all the characters in the play, Figaro is very clever. He's a servant. He's a servant to the count. Um, and Susanna is a servant to the countess. So the two of them actually work for the, the, the count and the countess who are married. Well, Figaro is very clever. He's a very smart fellow. In fact, the whole play is about how Figaro and Susanna together outsmart the Count, because the Count has, as you'll see in the next scene, the Count has some designs on Susanna. He's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a ladies' man. He goes around sort of trying to seduce other women, and the Countess is very unhappy about that, as you might imagine. Um, we'll get into the Count and Countess later on, maybe. But what I'm trying to say is. Of the two of them, they, the, the two of them outsmart the count in the in the play. But most of the the most of the cleverest stuff in the end comes from Susanna. So even between the two of these clever servants, Susanna is maybe the smartest of all of the characters in the play. And it's not by surprise then at the end of this little opening scene. That uh, that the count the uh, that uh, Figaro ends up singing her tune with her. He's happy to put his tune aside, which really was nothing more than dum 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 dum. Instead, he sings the most beautiful beautiful lyrical melody that she's been singing about her about her hat about her her bonnet. So that's the opening scene. Now, a little word about the way these these uh, operas work. There are really basically two kinds of music in 18th century opera, and it goes on into the 19th century, I guess, but it's established in the 18th century. Um, Well, hang on. Actually, you see it much earlier than that. But this is what Mozart does. He has two different kinds of music that he's inherited. One is called the aria, which is a song, just means air or song. And the other is called a recitative, recitativo in Italian. And it the, the difference between the two kinds of music is that an aria is sung to express the emotions of the people at the moment. The recitativo, the recit, is for the purposes of progressing the plot. And so it's just sung speech. It's just sung dialogue. The two of them, in this case, will talk to each other. Um, with with modest, almost no accompaniment. They'll speak to each other in singing. Everything in opera is sung. So they're singing, but they're not singing melodies so much. They're just singing lines, just like chanting more often, more, more than singing a melody. So what you get in an opera is going back and forth, back and forth between 
arrests it that progresses the plot to a spot where you want to stop and sing about it. And then an aria that is a song that is to express that moment. And then back to arrest it and back to an aria, back to arrest it. Now you can have resets or you can have arias for one person and it's called an aria. If you have an aria for two people, like we just heard, it's called a duet, strangely enough. Um, uh, for three people is a trio, quartet, quintet, septet, hextet, I guess you might say. Uh, anyway, you get, a, you, know, you have as many as six, seven, eight people, octet sometimes. Um, there's a marvelous, the end of the show has a tremendous uh, 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 multiple uh, character ensemble that sings. Um, anyway, what you've got here is a duet. So any of these is called an aria technically, but if it's for two people, they call it a duet as, and so on. <clears throat> so what I want to do is play you an example of the recit that comes right after the duet we just heard. And I'll tell you what they're saying as we go by. What are you measuring, Figaro? I'm seeing if the bed will fit in here. In, in this room, she says? Yeah, the Count has given his room to us. Well, I don't want it. I have my reasons for not wanting it. Figaro says, come on, it's a great room. I don't want to. Are you my servant or not? I am your servant, he says, but I don't understand why you don't like this great room. Because I'm Susanna, and you are a fool. Well, don't be nice to me, he says. Where would we be better off? Then he, got, he sings his little, another duet, and he says, here's why we ought to be here. Think about it. If the Countess calls you, Ding, ding, ringing her little bell. You can be there in two steps. Go right to her. This room is right next to the Countess and Count's room. Anytime my master wants me, he rings his bell. Three steps, I can be right there. And she says, well, what about some morning the Count sends you on an errand? An errand three miles away. In three steps, that Count will be right at my door. She says, Mrs. Susanna, calm down. She says, if you want to hear the rest, And stop with your hurtful suspicions. I, I do want to hear the rest. But my blood is running cold. Don't suspect me, she says. So that scene, uh, there was a recitative followed by another duet. And in the recit, he says, this is a great place to be. And she says, no, it's not a great place to be. He says, well, why not? She says, I have my reasons. 
He says, well, tell me what the reasons are. She says, well, um, I'm Susanna and you're a fool. That's why. (laughs) That's what she tells him. And he says, well, you got to have a reason. Let me explain to you. And then he starts singing his duet and he starts his part of the duet. And he says, just imagine, see, our our room is right next to the Count and Countess's room. And anytime she rings her little bell, bang, you can be right there for her. It's very efficient, you see. And on the other hand, if he calls for me, he'll ring his bell, don, don, he says, and that bell will, you know, summon me and I'll be able to be right there and serve him right off the bat. It's going to be just great. And she he says, yeah, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you're not onto this yet. Just a second. Let me explain something to you. And she says, imagine one day he rings his bell, don don, like you say, and he comes and he he tells he gives you a, an errand, and he the errand is like three miles away from here. So you're out and gone, you see, and I'm here by myself. And then she says, that's when he will come to my room. It's right here next to his, and I'll be in a lot of trouble. He'll be chasing me around the room. So he he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't you talk like that about the count to begin with. But then he starts thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I do kind of know this count. He is... (laughs) is crafty that way he might just do that you see so now he's got these suspicions and to begin with of course his first immediate suspicion is well maybe maybe Susanna kind of likes it well she says don't get over yourself basically you know she says get that don't be silly I'm not interested in him but there's that seed of doubt you see that's that's sown right away so they sing that little duet and his part and then her part make up the uh, the storyline and so on. So a little later in the scene, it becomes clear that this is really what the, the Count's plan is. And so uh, there's a great little aria that um, that uh, Figaro sings. And if I can catch it real quick here, um, I'll try and get it for you. Let's see. It's the end of Act One. Um, his his um, the text of it is um, uh, okay. Basically, okay, Count. If that's what you are having in mind to do, uh, then you're going to have to answer to me. I'm gonna I'm going to outsmart you. And uh, it's um, the Italian is se vuol ballare, signor Contino. If if you want to um, if you want to dance, uh, uh, count, I'm gonna call the tune. It's a very um, it's a very uh, cocky thing for a servant to say about his master in the middle of this pre French Revolution uh, France. Uh-huh. You see, so in fact, this play, let me stop just to say and tell about the play, a fellow called uh, Beaumarchais, a French playwright, wrote the play, The Marriage of Figaro, and Mozart took that play and turned it into an opera with the help of a fellow called Lorenzo de Ponte, who did his uh, um, uh, 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 libretto, they call it, libretto. And when that play was written, it was banned in several countries by the by the uh, uh, aristocracy, because it undermined the the uh, aristocracy. It made the count look stupid and foolish uh, and lustful and so on. And it more than that, it made the servant who outsmarts him, you know, look look pretty good. And so they didn't like that idea. So for a while, that play was not allowed. Well, if you remember your dates, this was 1785 or so when this opera came out. It was somewhat before that that the original play came out. Um, but the uh, the French Revolution was in 1789. It was just five years later, four or five years later. Uh, and so the 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 seeds of that revolution were in the in the soil in and in, in the air whatever i'm mixing my metaphors but you know uh-huh. get what i'm saying there this, the, the 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 revolution the 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 uh the the storming the bastille was coming and uh and the the people were very unhappy with uh, louis 16th and his wife marie you know antoinette uh living such lavish lives while they were starving and uh, so a play like this could actually foment that revolution. 
so it was it was something pretty dramatic to have the have this aria sung on the stage this this servant singing this very you have to listen to the character of the music it's noble and and uplifting and and um masculine ma- manly if you will let's see if i can f- find it for you and i'll play it for you okay so here he is giving his recitative he's alone on the stage a lone servant who says i think i'm getting this plan going to london are we he wants he wants figaro to go to london as a messenger and Figaro is beginning to wonder what's going on. And Susanna, he said. This is like a Hamlet soliloquy. Non sera, non sera. That's, that's the part that's so dramatic. Non sera, non sera. This will not be, he says. It's not going to go that way. Figaro, and then he goes, Figaro il dice. Figaro says so. <laughs> Who is this Figaro? Then he sings his art. Il dice. Il dice. Now. You want to dance, my dear Count? My guitar is going to play the tune. Il les Si, yes. If you want to learn at my school, he says, I'll teach you to dance the capriola. I know how. Ma piano, but softly or patiently. I'll be secretive about it. I'm going to outsmart this guy, but I'll do it my own way. I'm going to find out your circuit secrets by pretending, carrying, striking, stinging here and there. I'll overturn your schemes. Everybody who knows this show looks forward to to hearing. He's um, he's establishing himself as the as the lead of the show. Basically, he's he's the guy that's in charge. He's going to be running the show. But as you find out along the way, as I said before, Susanna is the one who comes up with the most intricate plots, most interesting uh, wrinkles and tricks to play to be sure that uh, all things work out properly uh, in the end. So that's a little taste of uh, the marriage of Figaro. There, there are many other characters. Uh, there is a the count and countess, of course, and they and their relationship is discussed. And and uh, and uh, the countess's uh, character is of the highest, noblest um, uh, description. 
And in the end of the at the end of the opera, uh, the counts uh, the count has made plans to uh, have an assignation with Susanna in the garden at midnight. And he's written her a note and and tried to seduce her to come and meet him in the garden at midnight. And of course, she's she's on the side of the countess. Uh, and so she and the countess switch clothes so that the countess goes at midnight into the garden looking like Susanna. And when he shows up and tries to seduce her, she you know, takes the veil away or removes the, the whatever is keeping him from seeing who she really is. And then he's caught red handed, you see. And there's this marvelous moment at the very end of the of the opera where he he confesses and he asks for her forgiveness. And in the most one of the most noble scenes in all of opera, I think she grants it to him and there's a happy ending. So I, I I wish everybody could go and see this opera. If you've never listened to opera before, this is a great one to go to first. Uh, and it's wonderful to see it in person. There are lots of productions of it. And there's some full-length productions even on YouTube that you can watch for free. Uh, so, but it's worth, it's worth seeing. And it gives you an introduction to opera that's very funny, very clever, very witty, and some of the most sublime music and marvelous, marvelous, graceful music that you've ever heard. Uh, the duet between the countess and the count, or the, the countess and, and Susanna, is uh, priceless. Um, Carabino's uh, arias are beautiful and priceless. Carabino is this young man. It's a what they call a pants role. That is um, uh, a mezzo, a mezzo soprano plays the part of a boy, and because her voice is higher, you see, and so she puts on pants and dresses like a boy and and plays the part of Carabino. And Carabino, well, I don't have time to go into all of it, but it's great fun. He's he's a great character, funny character, and he's constantly being getting in the, into trouble here and there, and uh, found out for doing the wrong things and stuff. And he's just in love with every girl he comes across in this in the in the uh, whole palace, uh, and uh, it's just very much an adolescent boy who's just smitten with everybody he meets. So. It's a funny play. It's very great music. It's the greatest, maybe, the opera that's ever been written. I'm, I think very highly of it, as you can tell, and I uh, recommend it to everybody. Well, you mentioned that in in other parts of the when you have the Countess and the and um, I just drew blank on her name the, the Susanna Susanna mm-hmm. that they're given different um, sounds, you know, based on one being upper class and that's right, that's right. Um, Different and, and characters. It, they're different characters. They're both good people, but they're but they're different characters. Yeah, and and so it sounded like you were saying that in opera, maybe before or but and, or Mozart and people maybe not quite as talented as Mozart. You had a lot of those songs could be uh, interchangeable. Yeah, in a, the kind of stock, almost like a stock character. You have a stock song, That's right. a stock tune. That's right. That's right. Um, it reminds me. We talk often on the Shakespeare podcast w- with Tim about uh, Shakespeare does that with his characters as well, right? Where the where the high the high class characters, or the character who's maybe wise, tends to speak in in poetry while he uses prose for the kind of lower lower brow and oh, so true. Yes, exactly right. The the uh, the the Duke in the Midsummer Night's Dream is always speaking in hexameter uh, iambic pentameter. And uh, and the, the the mechanicals bottom and all of those guys mm. speak in prose. They don't have any rhyme at all. And the but the rhyme and the rhyme for the fairies is different. The 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 rhyme for the the, the upper class people is always uh, iambic pentameter, five mm. beats. You know, with uh, uh, short, long, short, long, short, long, short, long, like that. And but the fairies speak in fours. They speak in four beats. And they speak in um, most of the time, anyway. At least Puck, uh, when when Puck and and Tata, uh, uh, Oberon are both uh, conjuring, they speak in fours in their trochees. They're strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak. Captain of our fairy band, Helena is here at hand, and the youth mistook by me, pleading for a lover's fee. Shall we their fond pageant see, Lord? What fools these mortals be! That's that's Puck. But when Oberon and Titania talk to each other, 
they speak in in uh, uh, iambic pentameter, like the like the upper class you know, of real of, of human beings. So um, yeah, Shakespeare is very much aware of uh, classes and differences of character and so on. This is Mozart is is in a sense subtler than that in the se- in the sense that the music has a character of its own. It's not. It's not just a certain beat pattern or or something like that. It's more the, you know, you have a have some kind of rustic music maybe for mm-hmm. some of the lower class characters, and you have some more refined sounding melodies for the upper class characters. If we had time, I, I'd suggest people go and listen uh, to the Countess's aria. The Countess has two beautiful arias. One of them is called Dove Sono. Where, where, um, where have the the the, the great day, the lovely days gone? She's she's lamenting the loss of her husband's love, basically, and uh, she says, "Dove? Where uh, have they gone?" And the the music is is uh, it just takes your breath away. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but Susanna sings. She sings more. It's not comical. It's not silly. Uh, but she sings kind of basic melodies kind of Mozart knows very well how to craft these things so that those subtleties uh come out so he's he's a genius and a half this guy yeah I mean, we, you, you talked some of that about that in the, even in with the firebird these are things that we we know from just going to film right there, there's music that it's meant to impart an idea of sadness or fear or sure. or happiness um is I guess is Mozart was this new to be giving so many different voices, or was it just that he was kind of the master of it uh, and kind of? I I think in my studies of the opera world, I think it's somewhat new with Mozart, but it's it's specifically new with Mozart because of his genius. Okay, uh, so he's so it's kind of both of the things you just mentioned. Um, Bach, for example, um, wrote a whole lot of uh, oratorios. Well, not a lot of them, but several of them, and a whole lot of cantatas. And some of the cantatas were what they call secular cantatas. Others were uh, for uh, worship in the in the church, you know, sacred cantatas. Um, and in some cases, he will borrow the same tune from a secular cantata and put sacred words to it. And it works even better. And I was just talking, uh-huh. uh, did a lecture the other day on the on the uh, Christmas Oratorio, and the uh, some of the most noble music given to describing the the birth of Jesus and the King of King coming to his own, and so on. All the the theological uh, nobility of of the of the King of King Jesus. Uh, is set to a tune that he originally wrote for Hercules in uh-huh. another in another circumstance altogether. And several, I read several people say uh, that it really fits with Jesus much better than Hercules. That's funny. So, but it's, it was that interchangeable in other words that you see. And, and uh, you see that I think in Handel as well. Um, and you see it in um, um, Italian opera, like um, uh, I mentioned Purcell, he's an English opera composer, but I'm thinking of uh, what's his name? Um, Oh, for him's sake, it's it all slipped my mind now, but I'm thinking about uh, Monteverdi. Monteverdi uh, was probably the first opera composer, and early uh, early uh, followers of Monteverdi went in the same way, that they they wrote lamenting songs and joyful songs and like that, and it almost didn't matter which character sang them. Uh, you can change the lyrics out, and the same melody would fit, you see. Uh-huh. But in Mozart, it's much harder to do that. And in this movie, in this uh, uh, opera in particular, you can't imagine uh, the uh, you can't imagine Susanna singing uh, the, the Countess's songs. Right. You can't. Now, they do have a duet together. And that duet is very simple and elegant and beautiful. And it has markings of the of the Countess's um grand character she's a she's a grand person she's a big person and uh, i think there's something of that in that do you remember the movie um 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 shawshank redemption yes remember that well there's a scene in there remember where the main character locks himself in the warden's office and he turns on the pa system and he plays a record of this beautiful music yes yeah 
And you remember that it's a trans it transfixes everybody in the yard. Everybody in the prison is for a moment is just completely stunned by the beauty of this this song, this piece of music. And he said the, the narrative narrative that he's doing narration, he says, uh, nobody knew what those two Italian women were singing, but it was so beautiful that we were all stunned by it. Something like that. Well, what they were singing about was this Sularia duet from the magic uh, from uh, huh. Mary Figaro. That is the duet that transfixed everybody in uh, uh, in the Shawshank Redemption, and it's understandable why. It's just stunningly beautiful. It's it's beautiful like a diamond is beautiful. It's not beautiful like a like a fireworks display is beautiful. That's the right. romantic theory. But but in the in the 18th century, you can't get any more beautiful, I think, than the grace of the of the kinds of melodies that Mozart wrote for this particular opera. And you see it in other operas, too. But this one, I think, is the best. Well, I'll give you a little taste of it anyway. I noticed, uh, you know, we like I said, the Firebird we talked about over the summer. And that was that's a ballet uh, by Stravinsky, yeah. I think. Right. That's and awesome. and this is an opera. Um, so in both cases, we're getting compositions that are that are meant to be narrative, right? That meant to tell a story. That's right. Um, which I think helps us to hear these things. Uh, are, 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 is that traditionally, was that more the place of music to, to, to tell, help to tell story? Uh, I don't know. Um, not necessarily. I mean, there was, there is theatrical music like ballets and, and operas. And in the 19th century, you have an additional instrumental piece called a, a tone poem that kind of tells a story without any words. But the music, the sort of what they call pure music of the 18th century, Haydn, Mozart, early Beethoven, those were pieces that didn't have any program to them at all. There weren't. There was no story being told. In, it, you can't say that nothing's being communicated. It, it was, but it was far more abstract than a, than the particular characters in a particular situation, like in, a, in an opera or a ballet. Um, you have in, in the sonata form, and maybe we ought to use, do this the next time we get together. We could play a sonata, and I could show okay. you how how that works. But that's great. There, there's a form to the sonata. Uh, the sonata. Each movement has a certain form that the composer is working within, and uh, the first movement always is in three parts, and it's got two main themes, and it's got a development section in the middle, and then it returns the, to the two main themes at the end, and with some stuff we could talk about next time. But um, there's nothing in it that's specific to a character. Okay. Uh, it's only it's it's like an abstract painting in some ways. It 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 fits uh, the human condition at a deep level that uh, uh, that that a story really is. Uh, it does the same thing, but it does it on a, on the superficial level on the on the on the what, what am I trying to say? On the surface is what not mm -hmm. superficial in the sense that it's less less uh, profound, but that it's on the surface. It's a particular person doing a particular thing in a particular circumstance. And uh, the, the, the abstract music is really the sort of the human condition boiled down to its essence. If mm -hmm. that makes sense. We can unpack that next time if you like. Okay. Yeah, we should get that. That sounds that sounds interesting because then you start getting to a specific form, which is similar to poetry, right? As we cross, as we cross mediums. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. In fact, it's almost at, at, at poetry at its source, at its root is rhythm mm -hmm. um, as well as images, you know, but um, there's a rhythm to poetry and, and uh, that's an element of music too. So they have that in common. So the, the, we often talk about the music of poetry. Mm -hmm. Right. Having to fit the idea, even if it is, whether it's abstract or, or concrete to the, to the form of a villanelle or a uh, that's, you know. that's right sonnet or something yeah right yeah that's uh, right um you you mentioned in the middle there that when you're talking that uh which you know when you said it, it was like yeah of course um but that the opera is all sung yeah. is is that the main difference between uh, say like an opera and what we would think of as like a mod the modern musical and is that is that does that come along later or are they kind of side by side at any point 
That's an interesting question. There's a there's a history of the of the musical that goes back to Mozart. I think um, there's there 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 are a couple kinds of opera. One, one opera is this sort of comic opera, this upper class comic opera, like we've just been talking about. But there's a kind of comic opera that is for the lower classes, for the middle classes, for the for, for the for the, the the regular people, you know, uh, mm-hmm. most of these most of these operas were written f- for the um, the uh, uh, aristocracy. Um, the the st- the state really was the, uh, or the you know the dukes and the counts and the princes and so on were the ones that uh, subsidized the composers, so they wrote for them. But toward the end of Mozart's life, you know, this revolution was on the on the horizon. And I, he thought he wrote an opera called The Magic Flute that is um, really not for the aristocracy specifically. It's for anybody. Uh, you see, there, uh, there are operas like that in before, too. But, but it'd be interesting to take a session and talk about the birth of, of the American musical. Uh, but it has roots in, I think, goes back that go back to, um, to The Magic Flute, some other things. Um, but the difference, the main difference in, in theaters today between the musical and the opera is that the that there is dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters speak instead of singing at all. They stop to sing arias, but all the, the what we would call recitatives in these in these operas are spoken instead of sung. But then you have hybrids like Les, Les Miserables, which is completely sung. The, the music never stops in Les Mis. It starts uh, with the, the first bum, bum, and it goes all the way to the end of the act, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything is sung. So in a way, you could say that Les Mis is an opera, uh, at least in that way. But it also draws on a whole lot on musical theater uh, in the traditions, musical theater traditions, too. But that's the main difference, yeah. Okay. And am I right in thinking that the overture for this is the the piece I would know from, um, say, Looney Tunes, like the... Oh no, no, that's no? <laughs> that's that's interesting. Um, Beaumarchais wrote uh, three plays, th- three different plays. The first of them is called the, uh, the Barber of Seville. Okay. The second one is called The Marriage of Figaro, and I can't remember the third one now. Just I didn't think about it. But anyway, the Barber of Seville is what you're calling, you're drawing on, because a fellow called Rossini wrote an opera called The Barber of Seville based on the first of Beaumarchais's plays. Okay. Mozart wrote this in 1785. Uh, Rossini wrote Barber of Seville probably just after the turn of the century, 18-something. Uh, so and what you're thinking of is something called Largo e Factorum, which is an aria that Figaro sings in The Barber of Seville, because he is the Barber of Seville, and he ends up singing Figaro, 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 Figaro. Okay. Um, but no, what the, the overture, you want to hear two seconds of the overture? You'll know sure. it when you hear it. Okay. how it starts yeah so so not from looney tunes just from many many movies that have that as their romantic moments and comic romantics you know not rom-coms necessarily but you know maybe a period piece or something yeah that's right there have been there have been movies that have used that there's a there was a movie seems like there's a eddie murphy movie called trading places that comes to mind (laughs) and Aykroyd and and they use it in that but I'm sure yeah. it's you hear it all the time. It's a very, very familiar uh, tune. <clears throat> but I, I, there are a lot of folks who know these operas best by way of uh, uh, Bugs Bunny and, yeah, and yeah. Looney Tunes cartoons. Those are brilliant, brilliant cartoons. The Wagner operas, I think, are well known. <laughs> yes. Of, you know, yes. Killed a wabbit, sure. killed a wabbit, killed a wabbit, which is 
that's Brunhilde's song from <laughs> from Die Valkyrie, the, the Wagner's uh, second ring ring opera. So yeah, a lot of people know him from there. Yeah, yeah. I think you know when those when those tunes were being written, the cartoons were being made. The um, these these tunes were probably still more in the popular mind, so they were, people that's really right. recognize them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mid twentieth century, early twentieth century, right, right. Um, so Mozart was German, Austrian, Austrian. Yeah, the plays, the plays was French, but the <laughs> operas in Italian. So, <laughs> right, that's true. The playwright was French, but uh, he wrote it in Italian. Uh, da Ponte wrote it in Italian. Yeah, and then Italian the music- opera was the thing at the day in the day. Was that the was that because that's where it began, and then that was kind of the standard, or is that something? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's when right. Do we, when do we start to seeing translated into transitioning into like, you know, the the mother tongue of whatever country? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually, going back to Mozart again, the the magic flute is in German. Okay, and that's another reason why you might say that it's not aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not not written for the aristocracy. Um, it was for the common people who all spoke German, right? They were German speakers. Um, uh, Purcell wrote in English, uh, but he was much, he was long before uh, Mozart. So it's not like everything had to be written in Italian, but the first operas were written by Monteverdi and, and his followers in Italy. So I think the Italian uh, language becomes a, a kind of uh, lingua franca to make a funny joke. Uh, <laughs> Uh, for 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 uh, opera, the, the, my old history teacher used to t- say that um, George Frederick Handel was a cosmopolitan person. He was an he was a German composer who wrote Italian operas in England. <laughs> That's right. There you go. <laughs> what he did. Yeah. Well, but Italian opera was a thing, you know. That's kind of how they were done. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, um, you said that you can find this often. I mean, I know it's performed often, but also you said there's, you can find it on on YouTube even for free. Is there a one you recommend? Well, I think this performance you're listening to right now is pretty good. This is um, a Bernard Heitink is okay. his name. H-A-I-T-I-N-K. Okay. Uh, and uh, he's, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant uh, Mozart interpreter. And and in it, you get to hear Rene Fleming, who is one of the greatest opera singers ever, uh, singing the Countess. She sings the Countess. Okay. Yeah, she's the Countess. So she, a good one from those for those arias of hers, the lamenting. Yes, right, right. Dove okay. Sono and uh, oh, what's the other one? You'll see them when you look them up. Okay. Um, but that's a good one. Um, I there are lots of good ones though. I've I've seen ones. I mean, it's helpful to get one that has English subtitles. Okay. Just to know what they're saying. There's no point in, well, there's not no point in it, but there's little point in knowing the story if you can't tell what they're singing. There's a Glyndebourne, I'm just looking on here, there's a Glyndebourne performance of The Marriage of Figaro that I liked in 1973. Yeah, here it is. Uh, And Kiri Tekanoa is one of my favorite opera singers, singers, female singers. And I think she sings The Countess uh, in this. Let's see. Yes. Kiri Tekanawa. She's a um, New Zealand um, soprano, color, uh, uh, lyric soprano. Um, and she's just terrific. Oh, and Frederica von Stade is the Carabino, and she's incredible. So I, that's a great one. I'd recommend that. There's a, it's Glyndebourne Festival uh, performance, and it's from 1973. And I'm looking at it right now. It's on uh, YouTube. Okay. Um, well, I don't recognize the name of the Figaro, but I'm sure better uh, men than I would recognize him. But the Carabino and the Countess are top of the line, best best thing, best you can get. Well, we can post those two those two options in the in the show notes as well for everybody, okay. um, if you want to send them to me. And then, as I was trying to pull it up on on YouTube, I uh, got an ad that told that told me uh, I can go see it. And if, in the next few weeks here in Houston, so hey, terrific. <laughs> so uh, look if you're in a, any major city, look around. Maybe you're maybe it's playing sooner than you think. It's a very popular opera. Lots of people perform it. 
Well, I'll I'll try and post those. Maybe I'll try and pull up that uh, that's that Shawshank scene too and post it in there just for oh, fun. Great and, idea. Yeah, great idea. And then hopefully uh, that'll give some people a chance to kind of listen to a little bit more of the of the opera. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk to you a little bit again about the um, Center for Western Studies. I know y'all are kind of right in the middle of your year, um, right. and I assume right. this is the time of year you start start getting start to get applications for the following year so that's right that's right we've got several people that are inquiring right now and uh filling out applications for next fall so we'll be receiving applications probably through march anyway um uh, into april i don't know we have a hard line but usually by april something we will have had you know our, our fill of those um i have enough of those Yes, the Center for Western Studies is a, a gap year program that I put together with some friends of mine. I used to teach college, uh, and uh, uh, we we had taught um, a, a a team. We had a team taught um, humanities course that was a four semester uh, uh, um, uh, requirement for everybody in the school, uh, and so everybody had to go through these four semesters to get a sense for. Uh, Western civilization and the art and the history and the literature and the music of the West. And uh, when the college kind of fell apart, the people that were teaching it with me and I all said, wouldn't it be great if we could continue to teach some of the stuff that we've been teaching? Because it seems by triangulating on things, we would we team teach it, you see, with a history prof and a lit prof and me. And we found that the students were really getting hold of the ideas that made Western civilization what it is for good and evil um, by way of, you know, comparing the idea of, of that's going through the minds of writers like Wordsworth, say, with the works of Beethoven or Mendelssohn mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the French Revolution that came just before him and and uh, uh, the art of people like uh, Jacques-Louis David and the early r romantics like Jericho and Delacroix and Goya and people like that. So just seeing paintings, listening to music, talking about the literature and talking about the ideas all seem to set fire to those things so much to our, on our, for our students. We thought, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we could continue to do this? Well, we thought, how could we do it? We can't start another, <laughs> not a college. We're, that's a black hole's worth of work. But maybe we could do a gap year program that would give kids who really wanted to dig into that before they go off to college a chance to uh, to dig in with Christians, Christian uh, faculty members. We've got six of us on the faculty and uh, all of which all of whom are um, presently or retired, recently retired uh, college profs um, and they're experts in their field, you know. We've got a guy who's a Shakespeare scholar, got a guy who's a romantic scholar, got a guy who's a 20th century scholar. So we know um, we know the material really well, and we're looking at it all through the lens of uh, of a Christian worldview. And then at the end of the year, we we uh, rent an apartment in Paris and one in London, and we go overseas and we uh, take them to a lot of the take them to see a lot of the things that we've been talking about during the year. Um, they have assignments at the Louvre, at the uh, Orsay Museum, the uh, National Gallery in London, and the British Museum, where you can see a lot of the old Greek um, Parthenon still. Uh, they say you can see more of the Parthenon in London than you can in Athens these days, because uh, so much of it is there. But anyway, they get a chance to see a lot of the things, and not only those things, but the architecture as well. We like to go to... Uh, to see uh, Gothic uh, buildings. So we go to Westminster uh, mm -hmm. Abbey and we go to Notre Dame, although we can't get in there now, of course, since it burned. We were in Paris, by the way, when it burned. We wow. were there. Um, uh, we go to Saint-Chapelle. We go to Chartres Cathedral. Um, uh, we get to see some, you know, great, great medieval accomplishments. So uh, that's that's our main that's our year. We start in the Greeks and we go all the way through to the 20th century with examples um, to to talk about what ideas have have uh, really influenced the Western world uh, the most. And nowadays, when you go to colleges, a lot of times um, 
uh, you know, the, the, the ideological perspectives are such that the first of all, the Christian view of things is is, is uh, uh, dampened, but but also even an appreciation for Western civilization as itself is is dampened, and uh, that's why it's so important what CRC is doing and and uh, all these podcasts that you're working on. Um, to regain a, a, a vision for um, the greatness of Western thought um, and to continue to wrestle with it, the great conversation, you know. So that's what we do. And people, if people are interested, they can find us on the, the web at uh, centerws.com, C-E-N-T-E-R-W-S.com, Center of Western Studies. And uh, they, they tell you a great deal more about what we do there. And there's an application even there, too, if people are interested in applying. And I'll go ahead and uh, drop that link in the in the box, too. Oh, uh, so it'd be easy, easy for everybody to find. Excellent. Thank you. Well, John, thanks so much for being here again. Um, this was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing this. Uh, yeah, um, me too. You know, I, I have some music background, but, you know, playing growing up. But, um, but this is going to be great for me and hopefully for our audience as well. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Thank you all for joining us on Quiddity as we refresh ourselves at Systems of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.